0: Uh, Good afternoon. I want to welcome everyone to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato, uh, and I'm also very honored to serve as the moderator on today's uh, book panel. Uh, During the financial crisis, one of the so-called villains in this crisis was pointed out as the short sellers who were argued to have driven down market prices and caused a panic. Uh, I want to read from... The SEC's press release when they decided that they were going to ban short selling on financial stocks. And the SEC did start out its press release noting that short selling, quote, plays an important role in the market for a variety of reasons, including including contributing to efficient price discovery, mitigating market bubbles, increasing market liquidity, promoting capital formation, facilitating hedging and other risk management activities, and importantly limiting upward market manipulations. Uh, I think that part of the SEC's press release, they got quite right. Um, Unfortunately, the SEC decided to set aside those benefits uh, and to focus on what they believed was eliminating the use of short selling as, quote, a tool to mislead the market. Uh, Apparently, the perspective of the SEC was that those short sellers who believed companies like Fannie Mae had essentially no value were somehow trying to mislead the market. Uh, sadly, this approach of shooting the messenger has been a constant theme in our nation's history, and that really is the topic of today's book, a walkthrough of our nation's history of how this theme recurs with each financial crisis. Uh, and while it's a really a shoot the messenger rather than examine the message type perspective, uh, only this week, as many of you probably noticed, the Greece's prime minister came to Washington uh, Certainly, I was glad he did not come here and ask for a bailout. He did, however, come here and ask for America to clamp down on speculative attacks on Greek debt, uh, as if it was the speculators causing the problems with the Greek debt. Um, Somehow, I suspect this is not going to be the last time we see either a company or a country, uh, when its misdeeds are exposed, complain about the ones doing the exposing rather than the misdeeds themselves. Uh, It is my hope that uh, our forum today will give us an opportunity to walk through what short selling is, its benefits, and also an ability to sort of take some of that spotlight uh, and shine it away from short selling and shine it back on the Fannie Mae's and the Greases of the world. Uh, I want to welcome all of our speakers to the Cato Institute. Our first speaker is going to be uh, Robert Sloan, who's the author of uh, Don't Blame the Shorts. Uh, Robert is currently the managing partner of S3 Partners. Prior to founding S3 in 2003, he held a variety of positions at Credit Suisse First Boston, uh, including global head of prime brokerage and equity finance. Uh, we are also very fortunate to have two very distinguished discussions joining Robert. One of our discussants is running a little late, but uh, he will be here very shortly. Uh, our first discussant, who is here at the table, uh, will be Professor James Angel, who teaches finance at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Uh, Jim, I'm happy to say, is not simply just another academic. He is also someone who spent extensive time working in our financial markets uh, and has an incredible uh, knowledge and expertise, both hands-on and an academic uh, perspective on finance. Uh, our final speaker, who I said will be here in a couple minutes, is Frank Hathaway, who serves as the chief economist of the NASDAQ OMX Group. Prior to joining NASDAQ OMX, Frank also taught finance at the, at Penn State University. Uh, both Frank and Jim have extensive, and really I would not exaggerate to say, or to have been two of the leading scholars in Uh, market microstructure in terms of finance. We are very lucky to have that academic perspective here today. Uh, With that, again, I thank all of you, and I thank uh, our panelists, and I welcome Robert to the podium.
1: Thank you, Mark. Uh, Also want to welcome Frank and Jim, my fellow panelists. The the subject today is... uh, Short selling, but it's really a historical debate. It started really well back, I'd say, 230 years ago, at the start of the founding of our country. And I'm sure it's no secret to many of you in this room, the philosophical and political traditions that were uh, that, that that were that were uh, responsible for founding the country were diametrically opposed on their view on speculation. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was a certainly a mercantilist, but he was pro, pro speculation. He was obviously uh, favored uh, i 'd think uh, federal power and uh, fiat credit. Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, favored the uh, ideal of the uh, yeoman farmer uh, favored states' rights uh, was extremely anti speculation and because he feared of how a fiat credit, in other words the government 's use of debt to subvert the democracy and republic, the nascent republic, he was very fearful of how uh, debt would be used to subvert uh, the rights and civil rights of the nascent republic. And so this pro-speculation, anti-speculation argument has been with us since uh, the founding of the country. And in the the depths of the credit crisis, I... uh, in my firm, we deal with a lot of hedge funds. We, we actually help them uh, reduce cost and, and their own counterparty risk. And it became very apparent to me that we were repeating not only our own history, but uh, I had spent a number of years in Japan in the late 80s and early 90s uh, working in the financial industry. And it became very apparent to me that the policy response to what was basically the same problem uh, would get us into a, a bit of a, a mess. And so I, um, if you look at Japan and what happened there and what's happening here today, it's basically the same thing. You had banks with uh, assets they could not value and did not have enough capital to support uh, the loans that are on their books. So in Japan at the time, in the, in the early 90s, what was the policy response? The policy response was to ban foreign securities firms, ban certain types of trading, ban short selling, ban securities lending. Uh, and what happened? Uh, I think they're still struggling with the effects of the initial response to an incredibly large macroeconomic policy problem with micro market issues. So they attacked what was the politically easy and ignored what was the macroeconomic problem of the day. And so I started to look at the time, I said, wow, you know, it, it, when, when, when Bear Stearns and JP Morgan happened, I started to say, well, you know, it's very possible given the nature of how assets have been valued, that we could have a a repeat not only of Japanese history, but a repeat of our own. And I started going backwards in time to see how many times in our country's history did we take very large macroeconomic problems and blame them on financial products. And what I found is that very consistently over time, short selling, gold standard, uh, uh, distressed debt, you can go back many, many hundreds of years and you will find that the macroeconomic problem, whatever it was at the time, has always been isolated to the politically easy-to-solve problem of banning or blaming a particular financial instrument. So that was the the, the, the thesis for my book, and that's why I wrote the book, because I saw that potentially we're living in the same cycle of history. Um,
0: That was quite all right. Um, My apologies.
1: Okay. I just want to make sure this works, too. Okay. There okay. <laughs> 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 okay. So an enormous corporate surpluses piled up, the most dependent in history. Where under the spell of delirious speculation did those surpluses go? They went chiefly into the call money market of Wall Street, either directly by corporation by the corporations or indirectly through the banks. Credit contracted. Industry stopped. Commerce declined and unemployment mounted. We know well that in our complicated, interrelated credit structure, if any one of these credit groups collapses, they may all collapse. Danger to one is danger to all. The answer is clear. It has not recognized that interrelationship existed at all. Who said this? And when? Ben Bernanke? Geithner? Head of the SEC? FDR, 1932, nomination address in Chicago. These are his words. So these problems and interconnectivity in the capital markets are nothing new to us. They happened 80 years ago. They happen today. But our inability to understand how products are linked together is one of the reasons why you're all here today. Ken Griffin, who is probably, I think, the certainly the most advanced in terms of business structure in the hedge fund world uh, in the middle of the credit crisis. This is what he said. He said, um, in this crisis the concept of too interconnected to fail has clearly replaced the concept of too big to fail. So in other words, the market structure has moved on from the present problem. The rapid growth in the use of derivatives has created an opaque market whose outstanding notion of value is measured in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. So in other words, derivatives and banks borrow from one another and one credit falls, we all fall. FDR said the same thing 80 years ago. Bernanke very much, uh, I think, sounded the same sentiments. I'd like to talk about the key elements of such a strategy. First, we must address the problem of financial institutions that are deemed too big or or perhaps too interconnected to fail. So these problems, especially coming from uh, Fed Chairman Bernanke, he is probably the foremost scholar on what happened during the the Depression uh, of anybody, probably in the world. he understands and I think market participants understand in our connectivity. But what does that really mean? Well, what it means is that we get CEOs that come to us in the 30s and we talk about on the left we have uh, uh, one of my favorite characters is uh, Frank Parrish who I wrote about in the book. Frank Parrish was this Depression-era figure who um, woke up one day after uh, taking Mackinac Peaches and then taking a boat from uh, Detroit to Chicago um, or uh, you know, from Michigan to uh, Chicago and selling them and marking them up, got the idea that he wanted to start the greatest gas pipeline company in the world and actually did it. But there was only one problem, is that he owned the company that was underwriting his stock as well as the pipeline company at the same time. So his method of financing was to sell stock through his own basically securities company and people understood that, so he started shorting the stock. And he was the first CEO that came up with the playbook that said, well, it's not me and my bad structure and my bad decisions and the things that I do. It's the interconnected relationship of the marketplace, and it's these bad short sellers that come out, and they destroy the company. Well, I won't ruin the book, but you'll see what happens to Frank Parrish. He goes to Congress. He's the first guy to figure out that if I get... Politicians involved in an arcane subject matter around interconnectivity, that's a great deflection mechanism for me to save my company, potentially save my own fortune. Um, What happens to him in a federal lawsuit around fraud five years later is very interesting reading. On the right, we have Vikram Pandit. Just a couple of days ago, he comes out and says, hey, there are ways in which fear overtakes it, meaning the market or our stock, and particularly, that's the tool that short sellers need to make money. And so that was a very dominant activity, and there was no real circuit breakers to stop short selling, and that's one of the things that took our stock down. All right. Never mind the bad business model of borrowing overnight and lending five years out. Never mind that that asset li- liability mismatch collapsed on, one, uh, collapsed on itself, and you, know, you basically abuse your own credit rating buying faulty assets. This has been around for a very, very, very long period of time. But Frank Parrish was the first CEO to figure that out. Today's headlines. This is, comes from the New York Times in 1931. Bear raid planned. So in other words, advertising in the paper before it happened that there, the bears were out there to take down the marketplaces. Senate committee blames speculation for market fall. Now, We talked about Greece. Mark talked about Greece. We talked about uh, Citigroup and blaming Shorts for really just telling the world that um, there are problems with some of these uh, countries and the way they finance themselves or their, their stock. So we have a blame game, and we have causes or I, you know I, this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but it's the list that I made up. Uh, we have you know overcounted derivatives market. We have uh, bad mortgages, we have uh, over-leveraged private equity deals. We have liar loans, we have covenant light structures in private equity. We have infinite leverage. We have governance-sponsored entities that are off the balance sheet of the government. We have securitization, uh, really, uh, that failed because of uh, Graham Leach, uh, the under under the the idea that uh, uh, secured, uh, securitization business model would be great if they were thinly capitalized because they would guard that capital with their lives, um, turned out to be not so true. So we have all these different things, and of course. Short-selling gets the blame. So, again, this is not only Japanese history repeating itself, but it's our own history repeating itself. And we have this very uneasy, uh, I was talking to Jim before about speculation. In this country, we have a very uneasy relationship with speculation. We always have. There's been a distrust about making money on money. And if you go back and read uh, about some of the riots that happened in the 1790s in New York City, you'll understand that... um, there's always been, I think, a regional dispute between uh, Easterners and Southerners and Westerners when it comes to how money is made. And it had uh, deep, uh, uh, deep and far-reaching political and cultural consequences. So this is, uh, you know, th- this is pretty plain to me of, of, of the blame game because um, it leads to, you know, we're doing something. So the first regulatory move of the crisis, and here we are a year later, And many of you may read the headlines today and say, What's changed? What's changed since September of 2008? You know, in my opinion, not a lot. So we have TARP, we have Basel II reform, which basically says how much capital the banks need to keep against loans that they make. Uh, We've had no mortgage reform, we have no consumer protection, we have a tax on bonuses, we have a, uh, I don't know what ban on proprietary trading means, but we have it, or, or at least proposing, and we have a bank tax. The only thing we've actually done is propose and pass a short-selling rule that uh, 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 prevents uh, short-selling if the market falls by more than 10%. So this gets back to interconnectivity. All right, this is a typical short-sale transaction. And I think what is so frustrating for people that understand market structure is that this is not hard stuff to understand. There are a lot of arrows up there, yes, but the effect is very easy. Uh, I will ask a question, which is, you know, let's say, you know, if hedge fund A short sells through the market and broker, the second line you see is that cash comes back to the fund. So the short seller owns nothing other than the cash. That cash is then given to the broker. The broker arranged for a stock borrow transaction so the fund can make delivery. What the broker does, though, he doesn't keep that cash. He gives it to a custody bank, like Bank of New York or State Street or Northern Trust. That bank loans them the stock, and they keep the cash. That cash goes into the commercial paper market. So a limit on short selling is not just a limit on shorting. It is a limit on the short-term financing and liquidity that this country needs desperately when banks don't want to lend money. So an attack on shorting is not an attack on bad guys. It's not an attack on a cabal of people. Uh, Look, I'm not saying that all short sellers are angels. Far from it. But what I am saying is that in the main, 95 to 99 percent of the time, hedging and shorting is capital formation positive for this country. Capital formation positive for this country. So at the bottom... Shorting leads to cash, which goes into the commercial paper market. And what does the commercial paper market do? It helps people make payroll. It helps them finance short-term inventory. It, it greases the wheels of commerce. That is very important for this country. So what do you have? Well, if you go to a typical Wall Street trading floor, this is what you'll find. What do these banks do? They rent capital, and they recycle capital through the system over and over and over and over and over again. And the reason why the credit crisis is a crisis is because that recycling can't happen when your balance sheets are clogged with assets you cannot sell. Your capital becomes tied up, and it goes nowhere. So what does short selling enable these banks to do? Well, if you go through all these product areas, shorting is a way in which they enables them to offset risk so that they can rent capital. That's what they do. Now, in a very strange way, we, uh, you know, a lot of people are very accepted, uh, upset at Wall Street firms for, for paying themselves a lot of money. Um, if you inhibit the short selling, uh, you're only making it easier for them to rent their capital at a higher price. So, yeah, you may be mad at them, but you're just making it easier for them to make more money because they will demand a greater liquidity premium because liquidity will dry up. So you're putting money in the pockets of the very people you might be angry at. If you go to any product area around Wall Street, you go to converts, convertible bonds and preferred, what do people do? They go buy this bond and, and, and preferred stock, and they short against it to offset risk. You go to options market making, certainly they short stock to offset risk. You go to block trading, block trading companies want to sell 3%, 4 5% of the company. Investors want to do that. They want to gather their portfolios. Many of the mutual fund companies you, you, you invest in do this. They have to short against that to hedge out their risk. OTC derivatives, certainly you're shorting against that to hedge out your risk. Any electronic trading. Electronic trading is a huge part of market liquidity today. Any part of that, short against that, so that you can keep recycling the very scarce resource that capital is. And I'm not sure, given where we are in today's cycle, we actually understand that from a regulatory perspective and also from a market structure perspective. And to me... The harder we want to create a villainization of a certain product, the farther away we are from giving people the liquidity they need to actually do what they want to do. So it's all about oops what happened there? Oh, OK. Well, it's all about liquidity. So you know I'll end my talk here uh, because I think that's my 10 or 15 minutes. But certainly, it's all about liquidity. So when you ban these products or you make it hard for people to short, you're just making it harder for people to rent capital uh, to do their jobs. And I'm more than happy to talk a little bit about uh, some of the history I found in the book and and some of the more um, cultural and political and historical reasons why Wall Street and Main Street don't get along. But uh, thank you very much.
0: wherever
2: you're comfortable. So. Okay, well, uh, I love the sound of my own voice, so I'll get started. The, uh, I think Bob has written a really great book, and it's a very interesting book, and it's filled with a lot of rich history, a lot of great anecdotes, and it's also really fun to read. So I, I highly recommend the book. And he makes the very strong point that whenever we have a financial meltdown, We have, you know, just like in the movie Casablanca, you know, there's this great scene where, you know, the uh, chief of police says, arrest the usual suspects. So whenever we have a financial meltdown, the usual suspects are the short sellers. And why? Because, you know, they have a financial incentive, or rather, they have the ability to make money when prices go down. So obviously when somebody is hurting because their portfolios go down, they look at somebody else and they say, wait a minute, my portfolio went down, so short sellers must have made money on that, and therefore the evil blood-sucking vipers have stolen my money. After all, it seems somehow unpatriotic or un-American to be betting against the economy, to be betting against government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The, uh, but the uh, reality is is you know this happens every time we have a financial meltdown. You know there's a call from the uh, uh, people who don't really understand how markets work to do something about short sellers. And Bob points on the book, out in his book that this goes all the way back to the Dutch East India Company in the 1600s. Very soon after modern equity trading started, we had people saying, do something about the short sellers. Um, and you know, I like the way Bob said in his talk about how it's all about liquidity. Um, one point that is often really misunderstood is about short selling. And you know, I'm partly to blame for this along with everybody else in the field, because when we describe what is a short sale, our canonical example is one in which somebody's betting the price is going to go down and they makes money they make money when the price goes down. But it's my professional belief, and I, I wish I could get some hard data to back this up, that most short selling is not directional. Most of it has to do with either providing liquidity You know, that is where a market maker is trying to sort of smooth out the trading, and their idea of a good time is to buy at the bid and sell at the offer and do that a million times a day, or short at the offer, buy at the bid, do that a million times a day, and go home at the end of the day flat without any inventory in their portfolio. And in so doing, they compress the bid-ask spread. Forgive me if I'm getting too technical. But what they do is they make it cheaper for everybody else to trade. And that is a valuable service. You know, they are greasing the wheels of our markets. And when the market maker is shorting at the offer, they're not trying to push the stock down to zero. No. You know, what they're doing is, you know, they are taking a momentary position to sort of smooth out the temporal imbalances. Because what happens is when your buy order comes into the market... My sell order is not coming in at exactly that moment. What the market makers do is they're bridging that temporal gap. Um, Another very important thing is they are keeping prices connected together. So, for example, when uh, you buy an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, suppose you get one that has all 500 stocks in the S&P 500, like the Spider, a very popular, low-cost, very good retail investment product. Well, guess what? How do you know that the price of that properly reflects those 500 shares? Well, an arbitrageur, or more precisely their computer, is scanning the price of all 500 stocks, comparing it with the price of the ETF and other products, and when they get out of alignment, they buy low and they short high, pushing the prices back together where they're supposed to be. So that is a valuable service to the market. And yes, that involves short selling. So... Um, Another great point that he makes in the book that didn't come out in the speech is that short selling really is a freedom of speech issue because the shorts are the protesters. The shorts are the people who are saying, hey, we think this stock is overvalued. They're saying, hey, have you looked at the financial statements of this company? Have you seen the fact that they are way over leveraged? Have you seen the fact that they're investing in junk? They are the protesters. They are that minority voice that we like to protect in our society. And I think that's a very important point. And that's a point that's not often made. So I'm really grateful for Bob for making it in his book. Um, Finally, I'd like to point out that, uh, you know, what can we do about this ignorance in our markets, about how they work? Um, and here I'm going to display my professional bias. I mean, if I were a used car dealer, I'd try to sell you a used car. As a professional educator, I like to sell education. Um, we really do need to have a better understanding of what short selling is, how it works, how it benefits the capital markets. And one way to do that is also to have better transparency in the markets. That, uh, because I think the more people know about short selling, the more people can observe how much is actually going on and how it is a normal part of our markets, it's a good thing. You know, the more data we have, the better public policy will be informed about how our markets really work. So anyways, with that, I will uh, turn it over to Frank Hathaway, who can uh, help us even more.
3: Thank you very much, Jim. I want to start with um, the thought Jim ended on, that uh, education might improve attitude about short selling, or speculation more generally. Some professions are just plain vilified. We're here in DC, lawyers get vilified, politicians get vilified, umpires get vilified, used car dealers get vilified, probably used chariot dealers got vilified, (laughs) speculators get vilified, and short sellers get vilified. And maybe it's just part of what comes with the territory. In the interest of full disclosure, I was an options trader for five years, from 1984 to 1989, as Bob says in his book, Options traders need to sell short, so I was a habitual and repeated short seller for five years early in my career. Um, whether or not I've necessarily reformed going on to work for a stock market is an open question, but you now know part of my background. To focus on the book for a moment, I think one of the great strengths in Bob's book is the breadth of the historical analysis. Not only do we cover 200-odd years of U.S. history, but it's done in a way that really brings the reader both into the context of the time but at the same time makes it very fresh, as if it were an event yesterday, whether you're talking about the Pujo Inquiry or the Pecora Commission or in a case of poor Chris Cox, reading what he was saying in 1987, knowing what he was going to do in 2008 and skewered on his own words. But we're at the Cato Institute, not at, at politics and prose, so this is really more of a policy, I think, conversation than a than a book review, per se. So turning to the policy side of, of short selling, 2008, the SEC's reaction to the financial crisis and the policy decisions they made about banning short selling, I think, were a very bad idea. I think where I differ with Bob and perhaps with Jim is around the circuit breaker, around the remedy. Frankly, I think if that had been in place... When the restrictions on short selling were lifted in 2007, we had quite a different outcome in 2008 and probably quite less, uh, a lot less disruptive. Prices, as Jim and Bob both said, are an opinion poll. They're an opinion poll on the company. They're an opinion poll on the economy if it's prices for currency, government debt, the market as a whole. People don't like negative opinions about themselves. I think S3 is private, Yes. Yes. My company's not private. We get a fair amount of trading activity from short sellers, and yet when the stock goes down, our CEO will slam the table and blame those dang short sellers with a grin on its face. <laughs> People don't like negative opinions. And when it's about the economy as a whole, through the treasury markets, through the overall stock market, you now get the politicians involved. And politicians, first place, don't like negative opinions about what they're doing. Secondly, in my opinion, they don't like appearing as if they are not in charge. So when you get to short-selling and the regulation of short-selling or the removal of regulations around short-selling, or at least a substantial reduction in those regulations in 2007, it's not surprising ex-ante that when a financial crisis comes in the equity markets that there's going to be a desire on the part of the government to limit short-selling. So in the 2006 SEC roundtable that Jim and I participated in with the SEC talking about lifting the restrictions on short selling, uh, which they were considering at the time, one of the things that I suggested and another speaker suggested was keeping a panic button. We didn't call it a circuit breaker. We just referred to it as a panic button, some lever the SEC could have in its arsenal So when the crisis occurred and when the political pressure occurred to do something, the commission would have a mechanism. The markets would understand that mechanism existed. We fast forward a couple of years to 2008. We have a financial crisis. We have Bear Stearns going under in the spring. We have a limited ban on short selling around the primary dealers uh, in the summer. And then we come into the fall, and we get the big explosion, and we ban short selling in 800 stocks, growing up to 1,000 by the time the ban expired. The ban is done on a Thursday night. It takes effect first thing Friday morning. First thing Friday morning happens to be what's called the Quad Witch, one of the most stressful events the market has, where futures, index futures, and other index derivatives expire. It's chaos. People don't know when they can short sell. You're allowed to short sell for bona fide of market making. It's not clear what the definition of bona fide of market making is in that context. You get a very disruptive trading day, huge impacts on liquidity, the immediate impact in the equity markets. It will spill over into other markets, as Bob said, and I'll uh, speak to you again in a second. Very, very disruptive public policy decision in its direct impacts. In its indirect impacts, there's really two big negatives that I see. Uh, First is what Bob spoke to. You take liquidity out of the stock market. You also take liquidity out of markets that had depended on the stock loan market. And Bob did a great job with that slide, giving you a sense of how intricately those markets are linked. But certainly withdrawing, the stock loan market, withdrawing demand for stock loan by limiting short sales hurt the commercial paper market at a time the commercial paper market really couldn't stand to be hurt. That's one indirect impact. The other one is a signal to the market that the Securities and Exchange Commission can change the rules at any time, change the rules about which people, like Bob's firm, make their trading decisions or the folks who work, through, uh, or work their trading strategies, investment decisions through NASDAQ. That's a big change, Uh, and we saw a manifestation of that change, this realization that the rules could change with very little notice over the last couple of days when a rumor went through the markets that the SEC might ban short selling in stocks with substantial government ownership. You had, at least as reported in the press, a short squeeze in AIG and some of the other big financial stocks as people became concerned that they suddenly – would not be able to manage a short position. Circuit breaker, which has been put in place, and again, my second piece of full disclosure, the exchanges, uh, NASDAQ, New York, a couple of smaller ones, uh, proposed to the SEC uh, a structure much like the circuit breaker. New York Stock Exchange subsequently backed away from it and uh, proposed a, a more restrictive set of limitations on short selling. But in any event, uh, NASDAQ was part of the group that proposed the circuit breaker. And more personally, I was one of a half-dozen people in a conference room one afternoon that figured out how this thing might work and what we were going to pro- uh, propose to the SEC. So both personally and professionally, I'm somewhat invested in the circuit breaker. But it sets out a structure that the commission has, under which, what circumstances short-selling would be constrained, what the nature of that constraint would be, which would be you cannot get, you cannot aggressively sell short once the stock's down 10%, and that limitation stays in place for two days, the day the stock fell and, the, and then the following day. One of the things that worries me about the circuit breaker is that once the industry has built this mechanism, and we have roughly five months left to do it, 10% becomes just a number in a computer program. It could be down 10, it could be down 20, less tight restrictions. It could be down 2%, it could be down 1%, it could be up 10%. Because it simply says, what's the price now relative to what the price was last night? And that gives the commission the potential to, again, introduce changes to market with very short notice. Having the mechanism gives them the ability to regain credibility with the industry that they won't change the rules suddenly overnight. So things like what happened over the last couple of days in AIG are less likely to happen. People can make decisions about the market, decisions about providing liquidity to mar- the market, understanding what the rules are. Uh, the danger is that they do have the ability to change the rules suddenly if they decide to do so. So they have to spend some time establishing credibility. And I haven't really talked about credibility or heard much talk about credibility from regulators since the inflation days pre Volcker. So it's back in, at least for those of us who work in the equity markets. And this gives them a mechanism to do that. And I think that's better than the commission not having anything in place. And then we will have another crisis and they will do something. So I guess I'm less optimistic than you are, Jim, about reforming behavior. Finally, then go back to the book. Bob's book has one of the most entertaining glossaries I've ever read. I would, you know, certainly agree with Jim, you you ought to read the whole book, but if you don't want to read the whole book, read the glossary, and it'll give you the sense of what the whole book's about and the tone in which it's written, and uh, I think you'll find it quite enjoyable. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, Thank
0: you. Uh, Before we open up to questions, I, I, you know, want to say a couple of things in terms of, first, I think this is a book that's far more a book on history than it is on finance. It's more a finance of history, and I know uh, a lot of our panelists have all used uh, jargon so for one certainly feel free if you have any uh, questions that force us to articulate that a little better uh, and maybe in plain English but I also want to say that that shouldn't scare you off from reading the book you do not have to be a finance person to read and enjoy this book Uh, I think this is a book my mother could read and enjoy Uh, so with that uh, let's open it up to questions Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's in the book, but I,
1: uh, all of you talked about educating people about the importance of short sellers. And one thing that, uh, I'm, again, I'm guessing it was mentioned, that would probably educate them the most is to remind them that short sellers are ultimately buyers. Not only would you not want to be in a market that did not have the information offered by short sellers – but the way I described it is short sellers are downside protection personified because they're the ones that come in. They can only profit by putting a floor under markets uh, when they come back in to
0: buy the shares they borrowed.
1: Well, you've, you, you've mentioned a couple of key items. Um, first, to echo Mark's sentiments, I did not write this book as a um, – I, I was actually very surprised at how well received it's been. Um, I really thought my aunt Sandra would buy 200 books and I would be about the end of it. So um, – <laughs> But, uh, and I've been very surprised at how people have, um, you know, really gotten into the, the history of the, the financial history that I wrote about. And thank you very for the very nice uh, mini reviews. To your point, though, information. The reason why the United States of America has the best capital markets in the world is because we have the best information, period. And when you start, I think, making it easy for the providers of that information, public stocks, to pick and choose what it is that if there's, no, if, there is a, if there's no price discovery on the way down, then it makes it very easy for corporations to manipulate information in a way that distorts best information. The second thing is liquidity, which you talked about. The short seller will buy back that stock at some point in time. Um, the taxation and the short-term capital gains nature of the transaction um, really, I think, prohibits a constant turnover of uh, you know a, 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 um, the, the short-term nature, the short-term capital gains nature of the, of the profits of the transaction. Um, you're not going to have people uh, generally shorts are um, uh, that are directional really in the story for a very long period of time. So they are there to buy back the stock at a lower price. They're not there to short the stock at $3 and buy back at, you know, 298 That's day trading. That's a whole different thing. Um, I think what the rules are targeted at are those short sellers that have influence over the market. And so in a very strange way, you know, what um, what uh, my fellow panelists have been talking about, what's the incremental nature of the rule? How does that affect information that comes out later, and more importantly, how does uh, uh, how do the markets react to uh, uh, the uh, the the fact that um, hedging becomes and could become very problematic over time?
2: So your point is very well taken. Although I'd like to point out, there is an important pushback to that point, and that is the problem is the shorts have a financial incentive that is the long-term directional shorts, to push the price down. And this is where you hear lots of colorful stories about people going through the trash, you know, in the CEO's wastebasket. Um, uh, Probably one of the worst incidences was the contact poisoning case, where somebody went and tampered with a product, put poisoning in a cold remedy, in the hopes of pushing down the stock price of the affected company. So, yeah, the, uh, as uh, Bob pointed out, not all short sellers are angels, and that's something we need to be aware of, and we need to address openly, that uh, you know, all of these alleged uh, crimes by the short sellers are indeed criminal acts, and they should be dealt with through the criminal justice system, not through arbitrary controls on what is normally a beneficial practice in the markets.
1: Jim, to your point, so, you know, my book is not – kind of um, support short-selling come hell or high water, uh, look, there are, there are rules in the books today that make it very clear what is abusive shorting, um, yet that word abusive uh, has really not been defined by anybody that I know of. And so you get into this very kind of interesting situation where short-selling is good when it uh, results in capital formation for the company. So when the company issues a convertible bond or preferred stock or something else that results in capital, okay, the buyer, the lender of money, has to short. That's good because we get the money to use and we can go do what we want to do. We meet payroll and we go and buy other companies and invest in R&D and so on and so forth. Bad short selling um, uh, is are those things that affect our equity price. So you have this very schizophrenic view of the world that says, well, when the results are positive for me, I love it because I get to rent money really cheaply. And when they're bad for me, equity price goes down, oh, we don't want that. So as a capital markets, as a market structure, you, you kind of have to, when you get the good, you've got to live with the bad. And, you know, that's the, the penalty of being public, and that's the penalty of being in the place where money is so easy to raise if you have the financials and if you have the infrastructure and the company to go do that. That should not be something that is a free pass. And I think the regulators, for a very long period of time, I think they've understood that um, if they wanted to investigate every single piece of wrongdoing in the marketplace, their their department, you know, their budget would be as big as the DOD. You know, we we would have literally, you know, a gazillion dollars a budget for the SEC. So shorts are a way to informally police the marketplace. And, you know, that is why you get some, uh, you know, crazy things about people going through garbage and so on and so forth. Um, you know, but those are those are People Magazine-esque uh, headlines that make for great reading but are, you know, few and far between. It's not a common practice.
3: Thank you. Uh, this is a two-part question, I guess. To Mr. Sloan, one, why is your company private? And to the rest of you, um, what is the importance? You, you stressed transparency and education and for people who have invested in the market. Most of what you have is, is on paper. It's not really worth what it says you're worth. So why would we want transparency and education with regards to short-sighting or anything that has to do with the market? And I do look forward to hearing from Mr. Sonam why his company remains
0: private hedge fund and I'm sure you're doing very well thank you well
1: um, well first of all we're not a hedge fund we, we service hedge funds provide uh, services to to them so they can operate their business better um, the reason why we're private is because we're not ready to be public uh, you know there's a there's a cost at being public uh, and I choose to live my life that way And fortunately, we can do that uh, we don't have to rent the public's money to be in business Uh, I started it seven years ago, and um, it was my own money. So um, we're not managing money for other people. We're providing services so that they don't have to hire other people. It's an outsourced uh, firm. And then they pay us. That's right. Um, In terms of education and transparency, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting, and I'll let the other panelists uh, comment, is that um, the idea that we want to uh, identify people that are short and this is something uh, Caesars, you know, over in Europe, uh, is is a very big issue about. Uh, short sellers must disclose their positions. And everybody says that's great because we'll identify who's short and we'll be able to, uh, you know, uh, identify the cabal that exists and the guys are, you know, uh, holding their hands as they cross the street and so on and so forth. Um, I think you better be very careful with that because um, the last time I looked at um, sell-side research, uh, every single sell-side firm has 49 buy ratings, and they have one hold, and they have no sell ratings. And so the idea that, um, uh, and as a matter of fact, I think there was one analyst at Jeffries that dared to put a sell rating on a stock and got fired. Okay. So um, by identifying short sellers as being short, you're really institutionalizing a sell rating. So think about it for a second. You have uh, investment banks uh, and other research firms saying buy, 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 and then you have uh, what people would acknowledge to be the smartest guys in the room saying sell, sell, sell. Is that something you really want in the public debate? Because uh, I think what will happen is that creates greater volatility. It creates greater, market, uh, creates, uh, greater uh, uh, spreads in the marketplace for the market maker to make more money. Um, it takes liquidity out because it puts fear in. And I don't think that the identification, though, seemingly to be uh, a, a positive public protection issue, I
2: think works against them. And uh, in terms of transparency, uh, I always hesitate to call before to call for more transparency because when you're calling for people to reveal information they don't normally want to reveal, you are breaching their fundamental property right in their own information. You are breaching their rights to financial privacy and there better be a really overwhelming public purpose to do that. You know, so you know, a lot of people will call for transparency because they think it doesn't cost anything, but it is costly. And we need to be understanding that, you know, People don't normally want their financial privacy breached in such a way. Um, the kind of transparency I would like to see is not so much the personal breach of privacy, but more aggregate levels of things like, you know, um, <clears throat> volumes of short selling. And I know we've had made great strides in, in recent years, and a lot of that information is now available. But uh, there's really a uh, – it's not necessarily easy to get, though um, – the, uh, we've made great strides in recent years, but I think there's more room to be done. Uh, I believe that if there's a better understanding of how the system works, that will then get better public policy as a result. Maybe not perfect public policy, because there's always going to be this urge to arrest the usual suspects. There will always be this sort of visceral knee-jerk reaction to do something when the next financial meltdown occurs. And there will be another financial meltdown. It's part of, you know, human behavior to behave like crowds in financial markets. So there will be another bubble. There will be another bust. Not sure where, when, or how, but it's part of human behavior. And we can expect that, you know, the next time there's a a 40% downturn in uh, the market, we can expect there will be calls to do something. And I trust that if we have better understanding, that something will be less dangerous than what we saw last September. Because last September, the, uh, when the short ban came out, the people who understood financial markets realized it was a totally useless action. What it signaled was that the government was, one, clueless as to what was going on, and two, they didn't have any other tools to deal with it. So it was like the scene in a movie where there's a a gunfire shootout and the person empties their gun and they have no more weapons left, so what do they do? They throw their gun at the other side. And that's what happened last September. That sent a signal to everybody that the government was clueless and that they were resorting to rash, absurd policies to try to do something. Jim,
1: sorry, I just want to make one tiny comment because he made me think about something. Um, You know, if you look at the Constitution, and you look at banking issues, and you go, "This is something I cover in the book." Uh, they are unbelievably intertwined with one another. Uh, federal power and banking are have augmented one another over time. So, September two thousand eight, we've always had this pendulum in the country uh, where you have, um, you know, either. Uh, 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 large centralization of government or you have, you know, uh, I, I would say, uh, 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 you know, more uh, states' right issues come to fore. Um, in September 2008, I thought it was the first time in our 230-year history where Wall Street really gave in. There's always been a pendulum between the two, and it's something that I go over in the book. But it's the first time where Wall Street went to the government and said, we just don't have any idea of what we're doing. And Jim's analogy of kind of throwing the gun and just saying, okay, you know, let's try this. That's what happened. And I think just in terms of the Constitution and the way it plays out over time, um, these are very far-reaching issues that we are in the middle of. No one knows where it will end. But I think it's something, you you know, as citizens we really need to understand and pay attention to because those two issues, banking and the flavor of the Constitution at the time, um, are very much intertwined.
3: I'm going to... Start my answer with a question. Were you talking about education about transparency specifically about the details of short selling or sort of more generally about? More generally, I, I get the question. yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Ideally, and, and Bob makes this point in the book, these systems work so well, nobody worries about them. They're just there in the background. They're the equivalent of what brings on the lights, except their role is to allocate savings and investment, and it's the system, the banking system and the security system and the financial services industry works pretty well. I mean, there are countries out there that have, for either infrastructure reasons, religious reasons, other reasons, they don't allow short selling, have much greater constraints on the banking system, uh, and I would argue they don't allocate capital investment so well, and they don't encourage savings and investment so well. So that's you know, very broadly why Jim should keep teaching his classes while I taught uh, the classes I taught uh, you know, at, uh, at Penn State. The, the challenge here is that the crisis came up so fast. Uh, there were so few people in government who understood how this worked, and the folks who they would normally turn to for advice, the, you know, basically the head of the banks who were in there saying, you know, you've got to put an end to this, um, that they went along with it. And the commission banned, they went along with the cr- request, and the commission banned um, short selling. So in that particular case, um, I don't really know what education would do. It's actually one of the reasons I kind of like the circuit breaker, because it Makes it clear that if the stock's going down, first it's the long sellers, which is one of the points in Bob's book. Most of the time in these crises, it is. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, as well as other regulators, are looking into uh, short selling, long selling around the crisis, and they may come to a different determination. But at a very high level, a you know, level we see and what we have spoken to publicly, there wasn't a noticeable increase in short selling in the crisis stocks. At the time, the individual firms got in trouble. To us, it looked like long-selling as much as anything else. Um, and certainly the great majority of short-selling is liquidity provision. You know, Jim made a little uh, comment about better data. Well, we have it. Uh, and the amount of short-selling It's simply buying and selling to smooth out the ebb and flow of investors' orders. This is a great majority of it, great majority of it position-taking for arbitrage or for speculating against the stock is it was a very small piece of it. Um, So I I began my remarks by talking about vilified professions sort of on purpose because I I just kind of believe that this is one of the things that that comes with a territory when you're a professional trader that if things go wrong, you're going to be criticized for what you do. Let me ask
0: a question to follow up on some things that, that Frank said made
3: me think about this in a way,
0: because certainly um, Wall Street is often looked at and vilified itself, whether you're you know, Goldman or Lehman. Um, but your point about during a crisis, the SEC, Treasury, Fed all go to the people they think are the experts, which in this case are the heads of the large investment banks, uh, the heads of some of the large commercial banks. Ian, you know, when the so-called experts are the ones whose own firms are being shorted, uh, and I also go think back to some of the stories in the book where, you know, these are very large, respected corporations. So from sort of a public choice political science maybe approach to this, how much of this is the result of the ones who are being shorted are, you know, generally well-established, respected institutions – you know, who already have access to the political system, whereas, you know, there aren't... The shorts are either... I mean, to me, it's a sort of a David Goliath story in a sense where the government is getting its information from Goliath. Uh, and to what extent is that driving it, any well, of it?
1: Um, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, and there are very, I think, far-reaching uh, implications for what you're asking. The... The fact of the matter is, in my opinion, um, too big to fail is really not what this crisis is all about. Um, Too big to work is. And so you have financial institutions that have far exceeded the ability of management to understand the actual products that they have created. And so um, it leaves you with this very uh, uneasy feeling, which is that um, we may not understand the products, but we'll sell the hell out of it. And, you know, that may be uh, very uh, satirical, uh, but to me it does characterize the crisis. So um, we have nothing but a very simple asset liability mismatch. In plain English, uh, our assets are illiquid, and the money we borrowed to fund those assets, very liquid. (laughs) So uh, that falls in on one another when your borrower say, I want my money back, and it's locked up because you've bought something you can't get rid of, that's a crisis.
3: Yeah, the, the political.
1: That, that, that's, so so um, the fact that you have custody of so many different assets that are being used by that bank and reused creates a situation where the plumbing of Wall Street has never been something that has been Uh, I would say it's not something you learn the first week you're there. It's something you learn probably uh, 20 years into your career. So the underpinning infrastructure of the firm is not considered sexy. It's not considered really that important. And it's not considered something that um, a chief executive flying around on his jet needs to bother himself about until he figures out that infrastructure is exactly what's funding him and that is why you have the situation that Mark's
0: talking about.
3: I certainly think that's part of it. The folks who are the CEOs and the immediate advisors to the CEOs uh, of some of these big firms didn't understand fully all the interconnectedness. Not all of them. I'm sure some of them did, but I don't think uh, every one of them did. The other dimension, the political economy, is that Once there was talk, and then over the summer, the first action to ban short selling for a short period of time in the primary dealers, um, once there was talk about banning short selling, other companies, some quite large other companies, thought this was a good idea. Why not me too? And effectively, they would go to not only the banks, or not only the regulator, but they would go to the banks who are like, you know, you guys are going to get some relief. I'm a huge client of yours. I want relief, too. And so the pressure on some of these executives, both in some cases for their own survival, but even for the ones whose survival really wasn't in question, they were being pressured by their clients to get relief from the short sellers. And there you have a class of people who really didn't understand the mechanisms and the interconnectedness of these markets, that banning short selling was going to cut off their access to commercial paper or have some other impacts you know, on their core business, and maybe they would have been you know, content to ride out the, the immediate effects of the financial crisis. I but, think we have
0: time for a couple more questions uh, right over here.
2: Yes, this is a question for Mr. Hathaway. The, the circuit breaker seems like a pretty blunt instrument, and there have been a lot of, of uptick rule proposals and so on. Could you, could you speak to why a 10% rather than something as
0: fine-tuned as an uptick rule?
3: The big challenge with an uptick rule is, uh, is twofold. One, it's simply operational. You know, where is the tick? I was a trader in, as I said, from 1984 to 1989. That included 1987. In 1987, during the crash, we had no idea where the tick was because the tape was an hour and a half late. That doesn't happen anymore, but the tape still gets late. So you have Jim reading one set of data thinking he can short sell going ahead and doing it, me reading another set not thinking so, but then I read what Jim's just done and we get this ratcheting down effect. So what the commission has done is said you can't be aggressive selling short once the circuit breaker is in effect. So the circuit breaker, once it kicks in, is actually stronger than the old uptick rule because the uptick rule said you could be aggressive under these conditions. And NASDAQ's up-bid rule, which was a similar idea but, but slightly different in manifestation, said you could be aggressive short-selling except in these conditions. Now it says you can't be aggressive short-selling at all. Um, the question about 10 percent I think really gets to what the SEC's been doing for the last five or six years about short-selling. It's been a very incremental process. We haven't talked about even more obscure things like, you know, locate and f- failure to deliver and hard to deliver and oh, we that. we yes, could, That's a get... whole other hour, yeah. at least. <laughs> yeah, sure. But so they put something in place. It's going to affect, by our estimates, 80 stocks a day in the U.S., most of which very low-priced stocks, under $2, illiquid. That's why they're bouncing up and down 10%. It'll give us some experience with this working. It'll, it'll give us some experience when there's negative news. And we can say, okay, this is a reasonable thing, no, no, when it's a horrible thing, when circuit breaker ticks in, liquidity goes kicks in, liquidity goes away. We'll get an opportunity to see. So they start off wide enough that it'll get hit, but not so narrow that it's going to get hit a lot, and they will tweak it. That's just simply been the pattern I've had for the last six years. And frankly, I think it's been a good one for an approach to regulation of something this complex.
0: I, I think we've got room for a last question of yours there's this gentleman here who's been patient.
3: Hi, uh, Charles Rice reporting for Merger Market of the Financial Times Group. Uh, wondering, you, you mentioned uh, the circuit breaker, uptick rules. What, uh, and described uh, banning short sales as a very, very blunt instrument, throwing a gun at uh, at a bad guy. Um, what tools would you like to see the regulators have? Uh, largely, this is a political problem, I imagine. It, it's not an actual market problem. But what tools would you like to see the regulators have to... Short circuit uh, the the political nonsense that go, comes up around short selling. I, I think
1: the you know one of my slides looked at um, causes and then where the blame sits. Let's just address the causes. Let's get around to either saying there's uh, more, there's a need for more capital uh, in the banking system. Uh, either that, or say that uh, banks can only do certain types of activities. But you know, let's get to it. The tools are there. I don't think you need need uh, the, the tools in the toolbox are plentiful It's a question of fair application, and it's a question of intelligent application. So I think what you're really asking me is, um, what's the difference between regulation and supervision? Um, we have the regulation. Uh, we'd like better supervision.
2: The tools the regulators need are people who understand markets. Um, We, uh, you know, the, the debate about, you know, more regulation, less regulation is overly oversimplified. We have literally hundreds of different financial regulators in the United States at the state and federal level. They don't work together well. Uh, we have this fragmentation where nobody sees the big picture and they get into endless uh, jurisdictional disputes about what is a security, what is a commodity, what is exempt, what isn't. And you know, the frightening thing about the SEC is you can tell, you know, when you read their rule proposals, that as an institution they really don't understand the functions of the markets they're regulating. And that's the scary part. Uh, we have uh, now, you know, I, I don't want to vilify lawyers too much. I'm the son and grandson of an attorney, um, but, uh, and I, I believe, I'm a firm believer in the rule of law, but our SEC is dominated by a bunch of uh, security lawyers who don't really understand the, the functions and economics of the markets that they're trying to regulate, and that's why we get you know, so many ill-thought-through proposals from them. So what we really need is fundamental reform of our regulatory structure so that we have simpler, more comprehensive regulation that, uh, where we, we don't need hundreds of different uh, regulatory agencies, and we need smarter regulation. We need um, you know, a regulatory apparatus of people who understand what they're dealing with so it's not so much do they need power X or power Y. What they need is the intelligence to use what to, to figure out what tools they need and then to apply them in a wise manner.
1: One of the difficulties in the current crisis is that um, people forget you know, the 33 Act and the 40 Act, which are the seminal pieces of legislation that form modern securities law. It took them 10 years to write that. That just didn't happen overnight. And they had the time to do it. The markets were off the rails. I mean, you know, activity was dead. So they had the time and the and the and the and and the uh, and the resources uh, to go out and really say, okay, what happened? What do we want to do? Okay, let's write this legislation. It took them ten years. So, um, I, you know, we. But the problem today is that um, markets are back on track. Markets are going forward. Innovation happens. How do you keep up with that? So, I would. What I'd, I'd certainly like to see is. Um, Look, the, eight, just somebody please say the credit crisis happened because we bought bad stuff, it went broke, and we couldn't borrow money. Just someone acknowledge that very simple fact. And let's just say, okay, for that never to happen again, this is what we need to do. And we wouldn't be talking about short selling. and We wouldn't be talking about liquidity.
3: Just uh, – I didn't add bureaucrats to my list of <laughs> vilified professions. so I'm going to stay away from Jim's remarks. Um, but I, actually, I'm probably much closer to where, where Bob is. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a, a better breed of bureaucrat. Uh, this financial crisis was not the first one we've had since 1934. I remember when I was back at grad school or uh, after my trading days, we had a mini crash in '89. And I talked to one of the macro professors uh, at Princeton, where I was at the time, who went on to be vice chairman of the Fed, so no, it's not who you're thinking of, um, and said, do you think there's going to be any impact from this? And his action was, no, financial markets don't have real effects. (laughs) 2008, financial markets had real effects. And the transmission mechanism, which is really what Bob's talking about, is, I think, where we have to uh, address how the financial structure got out of whack. Maybe I'll,
0: I'll close with uh, saying, as, as someone who did his doctoral work in economics, I, I will admit there is a big difference between finance guys and economics guys. Uh, maybe as much of a difference between that as economists and lawyers. So, uh, you know, the, the institutional details really do matter. I want to thank uh, our author, and I want to thank our discussants, and I want to thank the audience and invite everybody up to the Winter Garden for lunch. Thank you.